We'll have a Bible reading then. So we're reading Acts 12, 1 to 19. And it's Peter's miraculous escape from prison. Everyone looks almost ready. It's about this time the King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. When the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so, wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to an, the iron gate leading to the city. It opened by itself and they went through it. When they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept on insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as, they, as to what had happened to Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to go a little beyond, beyond that for the next five or six verses for the sermon. We just thought it might have been a bit too long for the reading. So keep your Bibles open and that will be really helpful. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we value your word so much because it's your word from your very lips. Uh, therefore, it is alive and active and it does the work that you want it to do. So we pray that your Holy Spirit may 
Touch our hearts and our minds today and the circumstances of our lives and teach us uh, things which will enable us to keep trusting you well. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So today is the last chapter of Acts that we're going to be looking at. We're sort of pulling the reins uh, halfway through, but the plan is that a little bit down the track we'll start at chapter 13, which is a, like a fairly big new uh, direction for Acts, uh, and do the rest. But um, we'll leave that to, uh, to, to everybody else. Acts 12, in fact, is a, a climax a climax of this ongoing account, this historical process of Jesus building his church. We've been looking at it for quite a few weeks now uh, and just seeing what uh, God can do in the midst of this challenge. Uh, and ever since the day of Pentecost, back in Acts chapter 2, uh, we've seen spiritual growth spurts. I mean, 3,000 people in one day, where would you put them? You know, you'd have to have outdoor meetings, wouldn't you? 5,000 becoming Christians in a short space of time. And, and we couldn't miss the um, obvious hand of God uh, working and directing and, and moving uh, for divine control over everything that was going on, people and circumstances. And we couldn't miss the courage that so, so many people sh have shown so far in this account, the courage to get out there and to share the gospel with other people. And we couldn't miss their commitment their desire to honour Jesus with what they were doing and what they were saying. Uh, it's very clear and very obvious, powerful examples and wonderful encouragement to us. Um, some of these changed lives just were totally unexpected, out of left field. Like Take Paul's um, conversion, for example. Here's Paul, the enemy of the gospel, turned into such a powerful witness to Jesus, to his cross, to his resurrection, to his authority, that um, the rest of the Jewish community uh, turns from f supporting him to chasing him. And yet while all these wonderful things are going on and we're praising God for what he can do, uh, we've also been watching a variety of attempts to destroy it all, at least hold it back so that it doesn't proceed so, so de definitively. Remember how we started with the local persecution and jailing by the Jewish authorities. Peter and John were involved. They were jailed at least twice in that instance. Uh, to that was added Stephen's death by stoning when he stood up and, and uh, spoke boldly to the crowd that was there. And then Paul's... Um, organised arrests and, uh, and killing of, of Christians, uh, which ensured. And today, all that is ramped up yet again, ramped up to perhaps as, as great as it can possibly be when the local king, the local leader, the one who has, or in his own eyes, has ultimate control over all those around, uh, starts to flex his muscles. And that's Herod. So that's what's happening in chapter 12, but I just want you and I to stop for a second. I want, to, I want us to consider a reality, a truth, that we mightn't have thought about for some time. It's not a very popular truth. In fact, when Christians talk about this, those who are not Christians sort of say, well, you're a bit of a dinosaur, aren't you? 
you still believe that sort of thing? <laughs> That's all uh, hocus pocus. But the reality is that from the beginning of the early church, in fact, from the beginning of the beginning, throughout history and right up to our present time, every generation has seen an opposition to the gospel of Jesus. We see it in our generation. Every generation has seen it. Sometimes it's lighter, like here in Australia, uh, although we see it sort of gathering its, um, its speed and um, momentum. And sometimes it's more extreme, like parts of the world where Christians, because they name the name of Jesus, ultimately lose their life. But in every generation, you see it. And that's because Jesus' leadership over the growth of his church is always opposed by the leadership of Satan. The name Satan means adversary, and he's very good at it. We can deny his existence. Um, we can deny that he influences anybody uh, as much as we like. However, the Bible writers consistently recognise that in the background of our lives, there's a profound spiritual battle going on. And uh, we are caught up in that battle, whether we like it or whether we don't. doesn't matter who we are. Peter, for instance, just to pick a couple of the references to the, the work of Satan in the New Testament, Peter takes the existence of Satan very seriously when he says in 1 Peter 5, Be serious, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Or Paul, uh, he knows how much trouble Satan can be to, to those he was working with. He says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armour of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. And they simply ring out a message that every one of the Bible writers rings out. They all know it to be true. And in today's passage, Acts 12, it's like you've got God and Satan standing toe to toe for the big fight taking up their stances. And the, the big question for every generation is, and for history as a whole is, when the smoke and the dust have settled, who will be left standing? On this occasion, Satan's man is King Herod. It's pretty clear as you read the text. And this is, there's been lots of Herods. Do you get confused when you hear about Herod? Yeah, okay. Well, here I'm going to confuse you a little bit more. This is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, he comes from a very dubious line of Herods. His grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the one who chased down all the two-year-olds in Jerusalem and put, had them put to death because he thought he could, uh, amongst those, he could get rid of Jesus in the process. His uncle, that was his grandfather, his uncle was Herod Antipas, He's the one who imprisoned and executed John the Baptist and then, uh, of course, tried Jesus before Jesus went to the cross. This Herod in chapter 12 was not fully Jewish, which was a big problem because he was looking after a Jewish uh, estate and area. Uh, he was Edomite by background. And the other thing was he had been brought up in the Roman uh, household uh, as a Roman uh, in actual fact, he had gotten into trouble with the Roman emperor who had imprisoned him at one point. And it was only because that emperor died and the next emperor was somebody that Herod grew up with and knew him, was a friend, 
that he was let out and uh, given opportunity to go and become um, you know, a king over an area like, like he did. He wasn't very popular among the Jews and that weighed on his mind all the time. And he shows his stance towards this small infant church by siding with the Jews, trying to get alongside the Jews so that it would be easier to exercise his authority in the area. So he brings the whole weight of his political power, his resources against the Christian's leadership and he raises persecution to a whole new level to achieve his aims. That's the Herod we're dealing with today. Luke, in the process of talking about him, identifies two desires that sort of drove him. And the first one was that he had this deep desire to be exalted in people's eyes. He wanted people to speak highly of him. He wanted people to acknowledge him and treat him not just as the ultimate local human authority, he's a great king, but as a divine authority. Satan has the capacity to influence any of us, but when he influences a significant human leader like this one, he sees an opportunity to do greater damage more quickly to the leadership of Jesus and his people. The second desire was to limit the growth of Christianity. Limit it or, if possible, get rid of it. That was his ultimate aim. He thought that if he could remove the Christian leadership, he could display that absolute power he believed he had. And at the same time, greatly increase his status with the Jewish population in the area. So there were his two desires. So he ramps up his attack. The persecution he brings is swift and it's vicious. He goes for the jugular, you might say. He, gets, he wants to get rid of the leadership, believing that if he gets rid of the leadership, then he'll get rid of the problem. James, whom he kills, probably beheads, is a great loss to the church. James had been prominent. He was one of the three, you remember, that Jesus took on several occasions with him to those significant points of his ministry. James is killed. And then when Herod sees how popular that move has been amongst the Jews, he thinks to himself, oh, keep going. <laughs> and so Peter is next. And no doubt, once he had dealt with Peter, he planned to keep going. It's not clear why he arrested James and executed him in the first place. It may have just been um, his own response. Uh, maybe, maybe James didn't necessarily do anything, but he thought this would be a way of getting in with the Jews anyway. But what we do know is that when the gospel is preached to people, if their first concern is to have people um, re uh, receive, sorry, is to receive praise from other people, then hearing the gospel of Jesus, which suggests, says and requires other things from them, will be an offence to them and they may well then act in other ways. Jesus, on one occasion, said to the Pharisees, who were seeking glory in his mind, they said, he said, um, how can you believe, how can you believe, who receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. He knows that you can't hold the two together. You simply cannot follow Jesus and at the same time devote yourself to receiving praise from people. Uh, faith is, an, is a God-exalting thing. Glory-seeking is a self-exalting thing. 
the two are mutually exclusive. You can't hold them together successfully. The priorities Herod had were designed to raise his status in the eyes of the people he regarded as influential in, in his state. And in verses 20 to 23, we're told by Luke of a dispute he'd had with the people of Tyre and Sidon. There'd been really good relationships with the, these three in the past, but at that point, Tyre and Sidon were not at the height of their glory. They were dependent upon Jerusalem and on Herod to feed them. I'm not sure why, but that seems to be the indication. Um, and he wanted to show these people that they were dealing with somebody who was very regal, very powerful, very influential over them. He, in a sense, had, had his hand over them and he was going to make as much um, benefit from that as he possibly can. He dresses up in his finery with all his pomp and ceremony and he, and he gives a speech in which he big notes himself. And they, because they need food, they say to him... Uh, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of a God, uh, which makes him smile and acknowledge them with great gusto. Jesus teaches us the opposite, doesn't he? He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Do you remember back in chapter 10 when Cornelius meets Peter, he falls down at his feet and starts worshipping him. And Peter says, get up, stop it. I'm as human as you are. You ought not to be doing that. But when the people hear shout out, the voice of a God, not of a man, Herod's self-centeredness and sense of self-importance uh, laps all of it up. And it leads him to proudly accept their, their acclaim. And in the process, what he does is he sets himself solidly against God, the true king. Jesus taught, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And so God progressively humbles Herod. I just want to quickly show you how he does that. It's fairly, absolutely definitive. But he humbles Herod in the most incredible way to show that when the smoke clears, it will be him standing there, not Herod. Firstly, he snatches his prized prisoner right from under his nose. Um, Paul has jail history. Can I put it that way? He's, he's, a, he's an escapee. He's already escaped from prison twice. And they know it. This time, they're going to be absolutely sure he doesn't do it a third time. And so they, they have four, prison, four um, soldiers, which is overkill. They manacle one on either side with chains to their wrists. And then after four hours, they bring another four in who are fresh and who won't, you know, uh, mistake something that Peter might be doing. And then they bring another... F They're not going to let Peter go. They're going to make sure they've got him so that they can put him to death and continue this process. But even the four soldiers on duty at, this, at that time can't secure the one whom God intends to be free. The angel wakes him, takes the chains off his hands, leads him past the other two guards through the iron gate leading to the city and out into the street and then the angel leaves him because he knows he, he'll be okay now. And that's when Peter says to himself, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel 
and rescued me from Herod's clutches. Up to that point, he wasn't sure. He's probably half asleep. He wasn't sure whether God was going to get him out of it. Well, he wasn't sure how God would get him out of this. But by his comment here, he makes it crystal clear to Herod, to the persecuted New Testament church, and you and me as well, who is more powerful. And yes, I know, James had been martyred just a few days before. How come James gets martyred and Peter gets released? That's a question we ask in so many contexts, isn't it? And in the end, we often don't know the answer to that, but we know that's the way it often happens. Um, It wasn't because the Lord couldn't save him. It wasn't because God was weak. It wasn't because God is incompetent. Do you remember the conversation Jesus had had with James and his brother uh, early on before he went? Jesus went to the cross? Where was it the mother of James came up to Jesus and said, now look, when you are in your glory, I'd love my sons to be one on either side of you. And Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I must drink? And they said, not understanding what they were saying, they said, yes, of course we can drink the cup. And remember he looked at them and he said, you will drink the cup that I drink. Uh, And they didn't understand what he was saying at the time. But that word to James found its um, prophetical conclusion in his own death. We know that great ones who seem like they're going to go on to magnificent ministries in the church suddenly get cancer and die or something else happens and they're removed from the context. And we say, but hang on, God, you spent all that time getting them ready for a powerful ministry and now you've taken them away. What's going on? And he says... It's part of what I'm doing and I'm achieving things that you are not aware of through this process. It's hard for us, but at the same time, God is um, seeing to it that um, his church is growing and developing. So here we have Herod applying the full force of political, judicial and military power to wield uh, in this process so that he can make happen what he wants to happen and the church had none of that sort of power all it had the only weapon was a spiritual one and that was prayer so they gathered together in what's described as fervent prayer fervent prayer they're focusing on peter no doubt amongst other things but peter they're dependent they're expectant they're confident If we were going to make an educated guess, we might say they're probably asking God to get Peter out of this. But if not, that Peter would stand as a great tribute uh, to the Lord Jesus and honour him by the way he died. That's a guess, but probably fairly accurate. And Jesus' response is swifter and more complete than any of them could ever have imagined. And we have to say God is good because, number one, Peter apparently didn't believe uh, that either God was going to get him out of this or he wasn't sure how he was going to do it. And then here he stands, he stood on the, on the street outside the jail and he suddenly wakes up to the fact of what God had done. Meanwhile, the prayers back there are praying, Lord, release Peter. And, and Peter, when he's released, goes to the house, knocks on the door. The maid comes and says, it's Peter, it's Peter. And he races out, doesn't open the door to him, mind you, races back out to the group, says, it's Peter, it's Peter. They say, oh, rubbish 
Here they are, they're praying, Lord, release Peter, keep him safe, or make him, let him honour you. And they say, it's rubbish. And when she keeps saying, it is Peter, it is Peter, they say, oh, it must be his angel. And when the, she, she will not give up. So in the end, one of them goes to the front door, and lo and behold, it is Peter. And of course, they're overwhelmed. Um, because prayer links us straight to the heart of Almighty God. And he will always be more powerful than any of the Herod figures of any age that want to set themselves up against the church of God. We'd have to say, opposing God is an unwinnable victory. So that's the first way in which he humbled Herod. The second way was also quite decisive. He took Herod's life. Um, <clears throat> as one person has written, right in the middle of one of his lavish demonstrations of self-exaltation, he crosses the line of God's patience. In Acts, 23, Acts 12, 23, he says, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And as Daniel acknowledges in his book in the Old Testament, he says, God changes times and he changes seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. That's what God does. And it's foolishness for any human leader to believe that they can stand successfully against the creator of the universe. They might appear to be succeeding at first, and we see that, don't we? You have a run of years where the leader seems to be oppressing the church, oppressing other people successfully, and then, step by step, things start to fall apart and change at the, at the prayer of God's people. They might appear to be succeeding, but any human authority who believes that they're totally independent of God and free to wield their authority that he's, he's given them, whichever way they wish, are in the end shown to be delusional. And that's because the victory they seek is an unwinnable victory. And the third way in which God humbles Herod is he brings to pass the exact opposite to what Herod was trying to achieve. The marvel is that while Herod kills James and imprisons Peter to stop the spread of the word of God, the actual result is there in verse 24. Can you see it? Verse 24. It's a summary of the whole incident and tells us where things are up to at that point in the growth of Jesus' church. The word of God grew and multiplied. God turned the tables on everything Herod was trying to do. And in the end, who gets praised? Not Herod. God is exalted. Whose reputation is spread? Not Herod's, but Jesus. And the final word is always God's. And attempting to frustrate God's plan is an unwinnable victory. So what do we say? Can I just say this? And you might like to talk about your response to this over a coffee. We ought not to be impressed or discouraged when we see what looks like temporary world triumphs by local or national leaders over the gospel. Don't be lulled into thinking that the, the cynical and mocking statements of, of those who oppose the Christian faith indicates their superiority over the gospel. At times we might feel small, might feel insignificant, we might believe at some level what people say is that the church is something of the past, 
that the, that the dinosaurs of, who are church members um, really need to move on. We might think that the church is overpowered when some of our best leaders are silenced or in some places in the world maybe killed in countries where persecution is more violent. Don't let frustration and disappointment shake you up when parliamentary bills are passed which run so contrary to God's word, as we've seen recently. The truth we are taught today is this. God has set Jesus in charge of our world and in charge of us. He is the king. If we trust and follow Jesus, we will win. If we oppose Jesus, we will lose. The Christian church has a marvellous future in which you are caught up simply because it is firmly in God's hands. He's shown that to us at every point in our Acts series. He's got everything powerfully under control. That means we can get on with being bold and courageous to spread his word and leave the outcome to him. The ultimate irony for all Herod-type figures is this. Oppose God as you will, but for Jesus and therefore also for us, the ultimate victory is not only winnable, it's already won. It's already won by Christ at the cross. And we as Christians already rejoice in that victory. So we resonate with James when he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a present encouragement. For the present and the future, we also resonate with Paul when he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might like to talk further about this over coffee a little bit later. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your reassurance in your word <clears throat> that you are achieving your goals and purposes and although there are things we don't understand on the way, nevertheless, we pray that you would give us the courage, the um, resource, the desire and the excitement to keep on sharing your word that others may come to know and love you too and share in the great victory won for, by Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.